Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Criminally Disturbed. I am Paul. And I'm Jamie. And we have got part two of the Jody Plochet story ready to go for you. Mm-hmm. And it is going to be a wild ride. Yes. It's going to be very exciting. Yes. Well, the ending is. The stuff getting up to the ending is not exciting. Well, it's bullshit is what it is. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we, we've gotten you thus far. We And basically, just to kind of uh, recap a little bit, Jody is part of a family that is in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're just normal kids. And he's in karate with his brother and uh, several friends in the area. And the karate instructor has now shown some characteristics of uh, being a piece of shit Mm. and taking advantage of little kids, Mm. using his authority figure, his authoritativeness to basically wiggle his way into Jody's pants. Mm. So... He needs his fucking hands chopped off. He does. Absolutely. And when we left you in part one, we had found out that Jeff Doucette, the karate instructor, had so much freedom while he was visiting the parents' homes with the kids there that he was able to sneak back to the bathroom while Jody was taking a bath and masturbate Jody. That is the craziest thing it, it is. It, it's very crazy. And like you and I talked about, at the end of there, you and I would not have let someone have that much freedom. Hell no. But again, they didn't know. And we have to realize that this is the 80s. That's true. You know, That's so. True. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to just jump right back into this. And it's going to start with another tournament. So let's get into it. Okay. They had another tournament the next weekend, and Jody would have won this one, but he ended up kicking his opponent in the face on accident and was disqualified. Jody knocked him out. Oh. But this trip was fun, much more so than the last trip. They went to Astral World again, and this time it was not cold and dreary. Mm-hmm. Um, during the ride back to the hotel from the tournament, Jeff whispered in Jody's ear and I I cringe saying this okay mm-hmm. he said quote I'm gonna suck your dick tonight Ugh. that night after an old John Wayne movie went off the air and the other kids were asleep Jeff ducked under the covers kind of like a snake and this made Jody really scared mm-hmm. and he began to perform oral sex on Jody he would do this almost every day for the next month oh my and at the at the end of that month jeff would then tell jody quote now i'm gonna fuck you oh after that he would perform oral sex on jody every day and after he was done with that he would have sex with him anally so how is this happening every day? Like every he's day. going to their house every day? Sometimes, and sometimes it was happening in other places too. And that lasted from May of 1983 for almost a year. Ugh. When school let out that summer, they began training for the Pro-Ams in July. This was the big national tournament. Mm-hmm. The one that everyone really wanted to win it was to be held in fort worth texas at the tarrant county convention center so they drove to fort worth with their families so gary and everybody's there june everybody june even made this trip because her brother jeff lived in dallas Mm -hmm. and jody's parents were going to stay with jeff and his wife carolyn after the tournament They all went back to the hotel. Jody's cousin Brad came back to the hotel with them. June and Gary went back to Dallas, leaving Brad to spend the night with Jody and uh, Bubba and them. You Mm -hmm. know, they don't get to see each other that often. They're cousins and stuff. They don't get to see each other that often. So he was supposed to spend the night with them. That night, Jeff popped Brad on the back of the head, just like he used to do with with the other kids, the karate students. 
But Brad didn't know Jeff. Brad wasn't really one of them. Right. So he didn't know that this was kind of like a joking around thing. So Brad called his dad, their, uh, Jody's uncle Jeff, and basically Jeff got fucking pissed. I can see that. Yeah. He said he didn't care what kind of karate Jeff knew, but he was going to kick his ass. Which I, mean, <laughs> I can yeah, see that. Yeah, sure. I yeah. mean, you know, you hit, you hit him in the back of the head, I'm fixing to beat the shit out of you. you right. Know? Nothing ever happened, though, between the two Jeffs, okay? And that's confusing because there's Uncle Jeff and then there's Jeff, the karate instructor. Mm-hmm. So, you know. But the next day, Jeff Doucette, the karate instructor, was supposed to drop us off with his parents. And in keeping with their history, he laid another guilt trip on Jody. When Jeff told Jody bye, he kissed him on the mouth. Yeah. This was something that he always did. But Uncle Jeff saw this oh. and became very alarmed. Yeah. And Uncle Jeff told Gary in June. And he pretty much said, hey, that's not right. Exactly. Just grown-ass people don't do that shit. Right. Especially, you know, he's not even a family member. What the fuck? Don't kiss little boys on the mouth. Gary and June pretty much kind of dismissed that and they were like oh you know they do that all the time he's really great guy you know don't worry about that shit there's nothing you know don't worry about it uncle jeff though was right something was terribly wrong but because gary and june knew and trusted jeff Doucette, they couldn't really see it they had been pretty much manipulated and deceived by Jeff Doucette. And Uncle Jeff had not. Right. Because of that, he was not trusting and misled by Jeff Doucette's front. Okay? But no one else would listen to Uncle Jeff. And they would pretty much have to learn on their own. Now, Jeff Doucette. He came up with some some business ideas throughout all this time, okay? And I in Jody's book, he says some good business ideas. Yeah, I'm not I'm not going to say good. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say he came up with some and I'm using the term business loosely here, some ideas, okay? okay? But he didn't really execute them properly which is probably why they're not good business ideas uh he came up with the idea of a of an lsu bandana called a tiger rag which tiger rag is a thing in at death valley you know so uh, i'm hoping he didn't wasn't the inventor of this right so anyway he sold the bandanas to don landers who's the owner of a baton rouge convenience store called the Cracker Barrel. You remember the Cracker Barrels back in the day, the convenience stores? No, all I know of is like the Cracker Barrel restaurants. No, they had convenience stores called the Cracker Barrel. Okay. Yeah. Jeff had the rags made for $1. He sold them to Don Landers for $2, and the Cracker Barrel convenience store would sell them to the customers for $3. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Everybody's making money. Everybody's making money. Eventually, Jeff was to deliver 15,000 bandanas to Don Landers. So Don gave Jeff $15,000 up front and was to give him 15000 more upon the delivery mm-hmm. of the bandanas. Instead of buying the bandanas, though, Jeff bought a van with the first payment of the money. This left a supplier with 15,000 unwanted bandanas because he didn't buy them from the supplier. Right. You know, and Don Landers was out $15,000. Landers pressed charges against Jeff and wanted his $15,000 back. Well, yeah. <laughs> now, Jeff also came up with an idea to sell mugs with the final score of the LSU football games printed on them. A lot of people put in orders for these mugs, 
which called for the money up front. Oh, no. Jeff was unable to to basically get past the copyright laws mm-hmm. uh, and use LSU's mascot and name on the mugs. Some people canceled their checks, but Jeff continued to write his own. This left a trail of hot checks around Baton Rouge. A warrant was issued for his arrest on several charges. A lot of the people, they wanted Jeff. Right. They wanted to get his ass. In 1983, Jeff thought he had no other option but to leave town to avoid prosecution. That is when he decided to go to California. And he decided that Jody was going with him. Oh, okay. Rewind back to the first I was part to say, so of the we're story. We're back to the beginning. So Jeff began to talk about leaving Baton Rouge. He would tell Jody he was sick of the town and would like to just get away. He talked fondly about the time that he once briefly lived with his brother in California as a teenager. Mm-hmm. He uh, really enjoyed talking about California, which, okay. I mean. He's probably trying to make it sound more excitable for maybe. Jody. So Jody would be like, sure, I'll go with you. Right. So June would tell Jody about people calling and looking for Jeff because he had written another hot check. Uh, Jody almost got in trouble one time for forging his mother's name on the back of some of the checks and and cashing them at the grocery store down the street. Jeff would make Jody forge his mother's name on a check, tell Jody it wasn't good enough, and have him sign another one and go cash it what he would later do without jody's knowledge was also cash the one that was supposedly unsatisfactory Mm. now jody he only cashed two checks himself uh he says i probably signed 10 though oh this was one of the reasons there was uh, a warrant out for his arrest so Mm -hmm. yeah As Jody mentioned earlier about the bandanas and the mugs, Jeff was supposed to appear in court because Don Landers was suing him for the money. Mm -hmm. Basically, he advanced to Jeff and stuff. The court date was scheduled for March 14, 1984. As February came about, Jeff spoke of going to California more and more frequently. Mm -hmm. And he said, quote, There's no way I can get the money, but when I leave, I'm taking you with me. Jody did not object to this, and he says, frankly, it wasn't because I was afraid. I felt I had no choice to refuse. A couple of weeks later, Jeff made his decision to leave, and Jody knew about it because Jeff had been telling him pretty much that it was a possibility, Mm -hmm. and then... On February the 19th, 1984, at 9 o'clock in the morning, Jeff arrived at their house. He knocked on the door and, as usual, was invited in. He told June that Jeff's brother had dropped him off and was going to a friend's house to lay some carpet. Jeff asked June if he could borrow her car so he could drive up there and to check on his brother and make sure everything went smoothly on the carpet job. The truth was, his brother never dropped him off. Also, there was no carpet install job to check on. Mm -hmm. In fact, Jody doesn't think Jeff had talked to his brother in a couple of weeks by that time. The brothers had actually argued, and Jeff had been tossed out of his brother's apartment. Jeff had since been sleeping in the storeroom outside of Jody's house. Oh. June had no idea any of this was going on. He slept in the storeroom for two weeks before he took Jody to California. A couple of days before he took Jody, June asked Jody if he knew where Jeff was. And of course, Jody knew, but Mm -hmm. he lied to his mother. He told her he had no idea. Mm Mm-hmm. She said, uh, and he asked her, he said, why are you asking? And she said, well, never mind. You know, she wasn't telling him. 
So he took the car keys from his mother that day. He thanked her, as pretty much any polite Southern person would. Just before Jeff left the house, he called out to Jody. And right then, he said, hey, Jody, will not you come ride with me? Mm -hmm. Remember, he's going to look at a carpet job with his brother, asked June if he could borrow her car and stuff. And right before he left, he calls out and says, hey, Jody, come ride with me. Mm -hmm. That's something he normally did. Right. His mother was used to that. So what was she going to do? She had no idea what was going on. Mm -hmm. Jody had an idea that this was it. So they got in the car. He turned the ignition. And above the sound of the motor and the chattering radio and stuff, Jeff removed any doubt. And he says, quote, we are going to California. Hey. Jody says he was numb. He had always hoped he would never leave. But now the reality was there. So the first leg of the trip was to his uh, to Jeff's brother Mike's house to pick up a few things. Mm -hmm. Okay, then on to Interstate 20, heading west towards Port Arthur. On the drive across the Atchafalaya Basin Bridge, Jody looked over and saw a friend and a classmate, Christy, and I'm not going to say her last name. She unknowingly became an eyewitness to basically an abduction. Mm -hmm. Just like that, in broad daylight, in June's car, Jeff had kidnapped Jody. So they reached Port Arthur on Sunday and stayed until Tuesday morning. Meanwhile, June was completely distraught. She was panicking. She called Jeff's mother and asked if they were there. Now, remember, Jeff's mother lives in Port Arthur, Texas. Yeah. Aaliyah, Jeff's mother, told her, yeah, they're here. June then told Aaliyah that Jeff had pretty much kidnapped Jody. Mm -hmm. She told Aaliyah that she was going to call the police if Jody wasn't returned immediately. Mm -hmm. Jeff had lied to his mother saying he was planning on returning Jody back to Baton Rouge and uh, was going to head to New York, and he needed money to do so. He then drove them to Vinton, Louisiana. There, they had visited uh, an uncle of Jeff's, so he could ask for pretty much money mm -hmm. that he was getting to New York and stuff. So somehow Jeff collected enough money for two bus tickets to Los Angeles, California. They went to the bus station in Orange, Texas. Jeff was anxious to leave. Aaliyah was still under the impression that Jeff was going to New York and was dropping Jody off in Baton Rouge on the way. Aaliyah did have, uh, she did have knowledge that Jeff had Jody against June's will. But as far as Jody could tell, Aaliyah in no way helped Jeff take Jody to California. Right. Okay, so she had no idea well, that, uh, what was going on. Well, he told her that he was going to take him back home. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but Jody pretty much was telling his mother all these lies yeah. and stuff. So the bus trip to Los Angeles was long. Have you ever been on a bus to going like, no. oh my God. So... When I was younger, I was 18, I think, 19, when I was uh, registering to be in the Army, mm -hmm. which I never ended up getting to do, but I was going to MEPS. So I lived in one town in Louisiana, and MEPS is in another town, and literally, if you just were to drive it, it's only about an hour and 15 minutes. Bus ride? Mm -hmm. Three and a half hours. Ooh. It is insane. And ugh. Anyway, Jeff was pretty much making a lot of friends on this trip. He was charming, you know. He was funny. He told a lot of jokes and things, and uh, he would tell a lot of stories. He told them that Jody was his son, hence how I started out the story. Yeah. And that they were moving to California so that he could find work. Also, in El Paso, this is one of the stops, the police escorted an escaped mental patient off of the bus off of the bus oh my she still had her hospital armband on being a mental patient wasn't what kicked her off the bus though 
that had more to do with the fact that she apparently had been giving blowjobs all night long. <gasps> On the bus? On the bus. Oh, my. Jody was asleep, so he didn't get his, is how he said it. But he had heard the stories the next morning. Then came a stop in Tucson, Arizona. They had lunch. Jeff shaved his beard. He was afraid of the border patrol. He was convinced that once they passed them, they would be fine. Mm -hmm. Why was he scared of border patrol is what I'm wondering. I have no idea. That's kind of weird. Yeah. You know. So that Thursday, that's when they arrived in Los Angeles. It was around 2 o'clock in the morning. They stayed in the bus station till around 7, then went to get a bite to eat, and they walked around downtown Los Angeles most of that day. At one point, they saw a bunch of cops blocking off the street, and Jeff got nervous. Mm -hmm. But Jody knew something that Jeff didn't. They were filming a movie. This was Los Angeles. This was where they filmed movies, and basically, Jody wanted to check it out. Yeah. He had seen a part of the filming of The Toy, a movie starring Richard Pryor and Jackie Gleason. Now, have you ever seen The Toy? Mm -mm. It's a good movie, really good movie. It was actually filmed in Baton Rouge, and it was filmed, I think, in 1983 mm -hmm. or 1982 or three. So Jody kind of, he knew what, what the set, looked like because they were they watched some of that filming and stuff well they were not filming the movie they were filming a segment of hill street blues oh <laughs> which at the time that was actually jeff's favorite tv show mm -hmm. they stayed there for a couple of hours and watching them do the same scene kind of over and over and over again they got some autographs they found out it would be airing March 15th. So, I mean, it was really fixing the air. That's pretty cool. So, Jeff began to kind of worry. They were in Los Angeles, California. They didn't know anybody, and they were almost out of money. So, Jeff was kind of looking for his next con, mm -hmm. how to get money and stuff. Uh, Jody was even kind of starting to worry because he knew their money situation and things like this. But with only a few cons left in him he came up with probably the biggest and best one of them all he used the last few dollars that they had had to buy a karate magazine he looked in the back of it for a name that he recognized and sure enough he found it al garza out of houston would be pretty much jeff's next victim mm-hmm Jeff knew Al from the karate tournaments. They weren't good friends, but they were acquaintances. Yeah. As Jody states, when he had been disqualified, it had been one of Al's students oh, that, okay. he, uh, that he kicked. So Jeff called Al and told him that he had a few of his best fighters had uh, taken a trip to Los Angeles and that the van that they were using had been stolen. He had told Al that if he could wire him $600, he would get home and he would pay him back. And Al did not hesitate. He sent him the money. So they picked it up, I guess, the, the next day uh, or that evening at the Western Union. Mm -hmm. Do you ever Western Union anything? No. F. But I remember they were really, really popular. It was, yeah. Uh -huh. That's right. Went to spring break one time, me and a bunch of friends and uh man we were partying god oh, we were partying and i ran out of money and i had to call my parents and say hey can you western union me some money mm -hmm. and they did so that so that that night they stayed at the hilton in downtown los angeles and uh i think he said it was around eight dollars eighty dollars to stay there at the hilton so that was pretty cool they couldn't have found a place cheaper. Oh, I'm sure. But, I mean, hell, they got fresh coin in their pocket. Yeah, Go live it up, you know? So they had taken a bus to Canoga Park where Jeff was, they were kind of looking for a, an apartment, a cheap apartment, you mm -hmm. know? And, uh, and a job. Jeff was looking for a job. They couldn't find shit. 
So they got back. They went back to Los Angeles, and they actually got a bus ticket and got on a bus and went to Anaheim. So they arrived that night. They grabbed something to eat, and they settled into Jody says was not a good night's sleep. Hmm. Jeff, Jody says that Jeff was probably excited that, you know, they got the extra money and stuff like this. And so Mm. Jeff was in the mood. Yeah. And it was really pissing Jody off because he was tired and wanted to, you know, be rested up for the next day because they were going to Disneyland. Supposed to be, you know, happy. But this time that night, Jeff wanted Jody to perform sex anal sex on jeff oh okay but jody just couldn't do it he said uh, it just wasn't happening right he said i I just couldn't do it you know so finally uh the next morning they did go to disneyland the happiest place on earth and to jody it was he knew that he was there and therefore he was safe you know because he was in public with a bunch yeah, of people. Exactly. Yeah. They rode Space Mountain. They rode the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean ride, and they rode It's a Small World. Now, I've rode all of them. It's a Small World is annoying as shit. I rode it. I couldn't stand it. If you do, you know the song It's a Small World. Mm-hmm. That song is constantly playing over and over and over again inside that ride. Okay. And it is a long ride. So, anyway, it's annoying. So they got done. They ate some, you know, they ate a lot of food there at Disney World or Disneyland and stuff, and they left. Well, the happiest place on earth was done. They checked into the Samoa Motel, room 38. While staying at the Samoa, a lot of interest, interesting things were going on. Jeff dyed Jody's hair black because mm-hmm. it was blonde. He shaved his mustache and pretty much let Jody come and go as he pleased. Jody did a lot of swimming and a lot of sitting in the hot tub and stuff. While he would be swimming, Jeff was uh, would be inside in the hotel room and stuff. Jody wasn't really sure what he was doing, maybe watching TV or he was on the phone or something, but he, he does know one thing. He would be on the phone from time to time with June, Jody's mom. What? hmm After they had been gone for about a week, jo- uh, Jeff had finally told Jody that he could call his mom. hmm So it was a Sunday night, and Jody called his mom, and he said, Hey. And he heard his mom say, hey, baby, sounded like she was kind of still groggy from having very little sleep. Right. Which, I mean, <laughs> which mom would be able to, to sleep, you mm-hmm. know? So it was a decent phone call. I mean, his mom didn't really say a whole lot, you know? But Jody did tell her, you know, more details about the conversation or the, the day and stuff mm-hmm. and what they've been doing. So that Tuesday, Jeff and uh, Jody left the bus station. And uh, that when they left the bus station in Orange, Texas, June and Uncle Robert arrived in Port Arthur. So when they left, you know, to, mm-hmm. to go to California, the day that they left, June and her brother Robert showed up at so Port they Arthur. Just, they were right behind them. They just missed them. Yep. Obviously, they were looking for Jody. They were just a little bit too late, and that was when June had found out from Nelda, who is Jeff's sister, all of the horror stories about Jeff molesting children. Oh, so his family knew. Oh, yeah. They knew. Nelda told June that when Jeff was about 17 years old, he had been picked up for molesting a child, but... Jeff's mother apparently had a close relationship with someone in the police department, and so it was dropped. Other rumors were out there, though, the, that were concerning Jeff molesting other family members. Oh. Yeah. So June and, and, and uh, her brother Robert had contacted Mike Barnett, 
a major with the Baton Rouge Police Department, a friend of the family, and a guy uh, that June had dated after high school. He contacted the FBI, and they put a wire on the phone Mm -hmm. in the Plochet household. Mike was June's coach through each of the phone conversations that she had with Jeff and eventually Jody. He listened in on another line and would write things down for June to say. Mm -hmm. He did an outstanding job keeping June very cool, calm, collected. Jeff had no clue that anybody was listening in. Jeff kept insisting that they were in New York. He kept telling June to meet him there with the other three kids. Once they asked Jeff the time, and he replied that it was 5 o'clock, which was the time in Los Angeles. That translated to 7 o'clock in Baton Rouge and 8 o'clock in New York. Mm. So they kind of knew... He wasn't in New York. He was not in New York. Another uh, dumb thing that Jeff did was to let Jody tell his mother that they had saw the filming of Hill Street Blues. Oh, okay. Peggy Graham, who is a good friend, got on the phone and called Hollywood and asked where they filmed Hill Street Blues, and they told her that it was mostly in Los Angeles, but sometimes they do film in, in Chicago, but mostly it was in uh, in Los Angeles. So Jeff then made a, a really bad mistake. And Jody didn't know if it was out of ignorance or necessity. But he made Jody call home collect. Oh. So when he did this, June actually got off the phone. When they got off the phone, they asked the operator, you know, the time and charges, mm-hmm. you know. And so they did that, and they actually they were able to trace to Anaheim and eventually to the Samoa Motel and even the freaking room. Wow. So Jeff had called June back and was talking to her when when they heard a knock on the door. Then they had heard a key turning and what seemed like 50 police officers that came bursting into the room. They pointed the loaded guns everywhere. He said that they pointed at, at Jody and they, they pointed at Jeff and anything that pretty much was moving. Jeff immediately put the phone down and got into the frisk position on the wall. One of the officers walked over to Jeff and he said, quote, I ought to punch you right in your fucking mouth. Yeah. And he would have been justified, in my opinion. In my opinion, too. <laughs> so obviously they, they take him away. But next on the on uh, the police's agenda was the Albert Sitton home. J- uh, Jody got there close to either three or four in the morning. They took his clothes, they made him shower, and they put him in some some of the, the clothes that they had there. And mm-hmm. Jody describes them as rags. They escorted him to a room where there was about forty beds, most of which were full of children much like himself and they gave him a bed and he was finally able to get some sleep at eight o'clock in the next morning the counselors were waking everybody up and including jody and jody says i wasn't going for that shit so he told him leave me alone i just got here and i'm i'm not staying you know one of the counselors had been informed about Jody and what it, what was going on and stuff, and they said, quote, that's right, he got here around 4 in the morning, let him sleep. So they did. So that was good. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of details that go into the time that he spent there mm-hmm. and stuff that I'm not going to get into. How I long was he there? He wasn't there very long. Okay. No, we're talking a couple of days. Okay. So he wasn't there. But, but there's a lot of details that he, he experiences while he's there. And I encourage everybody to go read his book, okay? Because okay? um, it, it's actually some funny stuff in there, too. So, and some not-so-funny stuff. But I don't want to take that from Jody. So he was about to go to bed when uh, someone told him that he would be leaving around 1.10 a.m. Wow. Um, and he would be going to LAX, which is the airport there in Los Angeles and stuff. So he laid down 
Yeah, only to be awoken by some people saying, come on, let's go, get your stuff, you're going home. Uh, So the man drove him to the airport. He told him uh, that the news media had gotten wind of the story and wanted to film him leaving from the airport to go home. He told Jody that he had told the media no, Mm -hmm. that Jody had experienced enough and to just basically leave him alone. Right. Okay. So, of course, the media was disappointed and everything, but, you know, it's the media. So they got on the plane and they took off and everything and and, uh, he fell asleep on the plane. And he says that he woke up as the plane started its descent into New Orleans. And they got off the plane and he was walking up the ramp and he saw his mother standing there waiting on him. She ran up to him and she hugged him. And as he turned around, he saw John Pastorek, who was a local reporter and a news camera. And after a long flight from New Orleans and the events of the last couple of days, Jody just was not in the mood for the news cameras. Right. So he asked his mother, what are they doing here? And she said, your dad called them. Now smile and act like you're happy to see us. <laughs> kind of like, I mean, I can see my mom saying that right. to me, you know. So Jody was glad to be home, but he was not happy. Then came the questions from John, the reporter. What do you think about all of this? And Jody let out a carefully rehearsed statement that he had been preparing and stuff. And he said, "Eh, I don't don't know. Right. You know, (laughs) carefully rehearsed is what he says in his book. They filmed them walking through the airport like such a happy family. But at the time, he says that they were not happy. Um, Uncle Robert was there along with Bubba. Bubba got a few seconds of airtime, as Jody says, you know. It actually did play on the news that night. They showed a shot of Bubba looking out the window, um, anxiously waiting for Jody to return, or at least that's what it looked like. But Bubba had told Jody he was looking at the airplanes pretty much. (laughs) So, So they got in. Uh, to Uncle Robert's car, and they headed straight to their Uncle Robert's favorite restaurant, McDonald's. Oh, <laughs> oh my so goodness! They they all got some McDonald's and stuff, and 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 then they ended up heading back to the house. So they arrived home, and there, he said it felt like there was a thousand people there. Ugh. And uh, he said, I I had. I had to go to the Baton Rouge Police Department to answer a few questions and stuff. So that's when he met Mike Barnett, Mm -hmm. the police officer mentioned earlier. And he finally got to meet him and stuff. But there was two policemen, Captain Bueto and Captain Riles. And they took Jody into another room for questioning. Uh, That went on for about two hours. They started out in a positive mood but then that kind of turned and stuff they were really he said that they were really grilling him hard you know like really? almost like an interrogation you know mm. but i know what they were doing and jody doesn't say this in his book but i know what they're doing they're trying to break him and if they can break him they're basically trying to see if he's lying about anything okay but he sticks to his story and he tells them but he doesn't really tell them, mm-hmm. okay? He never tells them anything bad that Jeff did to him. Mm-hmm. He just basically said that they had fun. Okay. So they kept asking him, did Jeff molest you? Did Jeff touch you? There were many other questions along those same lines, but basically the same kind of questions and stuff that he had faced in questioning in California because they did question him in California. Except one thing was different. These guys, they got mean. Mm -hmm. They started raising their voices. They tried to threaten Jody. They tried to trick him. These guys, he says, were vicious. Mm -hmm. They had Jody scared to death. But Jody stuck to his story, didn't change one thing 
and he continued to lie. People wonder, and this is coming from Jody's book. This is him saying, people wonder why I was still lying. They can't figure out why I was still protecting Jeff. First of all, I wasn't protecting Jeff. I was going to say, I don't take it as he was protecting him. I, I was protecting me. Yeah. I knew that if I told on Jeff, someone would tell Jeff what I had done. I figured that he would get out of jail and come to get me, asking why I've told all of this, mm-hmm. which he would have. Which I was also thinking, yeah, not only for that, but also because he's probably ready to get back to somewhat of a normal right existence. Right. And that brings me to the next thing I'm about to say. Okay. Jody spent the weekend being welcomed back by family and friends and stuff. He also spent time reading the articles in the paper about him. Jody had made the Shreveport newspaper. Hey. He was famous in his own words. He got mad at a few things in, uh, while he was reading the articles and stuff. One, they said that Jody thought it was a game or a vacation. Jody knew it wasn't a vacation, mm-hmm. and he definitely didn't think it was a game, and that made him sound stupid right. in his eyes. Second, they said that he was 12 years old, and he wasn't. He was 11. So there were a lot of things out there that were being spread in the media and stuff that just wasn't true. Right. You know? But if you remember, Jody wasn't really wasn't talking to media, so they didn't have a whole lot to go on. So then came March 8th. June had told Jody that Mike Barnett wanted to talk to her the next day, and she couldn't figure out why. Jody knew it was time for the report to be in. Now, what report? Back in California, Jody went, underwent a rape kit. Oh, okay. The next day at school, Jody was nervous. He didn't want the final bell to ring at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. He knew it was time for the truth. He says, I briefly considered making up a story about some guy who had gotten me at the hotel we stayed at, but I figured they're not that stupid. Right. They believed the other lie, but not that one. So he knew that the truth was fixing to come out. Mm -hmm. Mike Barnett had come over to the house around noon on March the 9th, 1984. He sat his parents down, Mm -hmm. June and Gary, and showed them the hospital report. It was positive. It said that there was sperm in the rectum. Jeff had been raping their 11-year-old son. Gary's reaction was to say Jeff was a dead motherfucker, and that is a quote. Good for him, because I was just sitting here thinking, oh, he needs to die. June asked, Mike, can you kill him? (laughs) So it was pretty evident that June and Gary did not really care if Jeff took another breath. Yeah, yeah. So both June and Gary, as well as Mike Barnett, were crying along with, you know, all all the emotions that were flowing and stuff. And Gary kept insisting Jeff was going to die. At this point, this was pretty much a violation of trust, you know, and everything. All the emotions and stuff. Right. That they figured that they'd been duped. Yeah. You know, they'd been tricked by this guy. So June was waiting at the bus stop for the kids to get off the bus that day. And she told Jody, and only Jody, to get in the car. She drove Jody home and sat him on the couch. She told him, Mike Barnett came over today, and the hospital report came back positive. Jody tried one last time for stupidity, and he said, what does that mean? Mm. June says, that means Jeff fooled with you. And Jody says, he did. And he felt a weight had been lifted off of his whole body by finally telling the truth. Can you imagine? I mean, you know, it's hard to to come out and tell the truth. Right. But when you finally do and stuff, 
he said it was like a, a weight had lifted right off of his chest, and he felt so much better about it. Thursday, March 15th, Major Mike Barnett and Lieutenant Bud Connor flew to California to extradite Jeff back to Baton Rouge. Mike and Bud picked up Jeff around noon that Friday. Bud and Jeff rode in the back of the car with John O'Neill, an agent with the Santa Ana Division of the FBI. Mike followed. As Bud and Jeff sat in the car on the way to the airport, Jeff asked Bud if he was Catholic. Bud said he was. Jeff then said he had something he wanted to confess because he wanted, quote, absolution. Bud said he was not a priest but would listen to what he had to say. Jeff stated he had not eaten in 17 days and planned on fasting for at least another 30 more. Then he told the history of his childhood. He confessed to molesting Jody. Bud asked if Jody was the only one, and Jeff said, yes. Bud said he did not believe him, but would continue to listen. Mm -hmm. This was about the time they arrived at the airport. Jeff told Agent O'Neill he would call him and tell him the story once he arrived in Baton Rouge. Agent O'Neill told Jeff to call any time. Mike and Bud then escorted Jeff through the Los Angeles airport boarding flight 595. Destination, Baton Rouge. Once on the plane, Jeff began an emotional confession. At many points, they would have, uh, have to give him time to gain composure because he was crying so heavily, something he was really good at. I was supposed to say, bitch, say those damn tears. He told about his relationship with Jody and two other kids. Mm. I mean, he needs his ass beat. Yeah. I, I'd love to do it. Please. Jeff's confession went on throughout the whole plane trip. He stated that he wanted to talk with the three kids and their parents alone so he could advise the parents to get the kids some psychiatric help. Jeff said that he wanted to meet? Oh. And advise the parents uh, uh. to give the kids psychiatric help. What uh, uh. a piece of shit. First of all, you don't need to be meeting with the parents if you know what's good for you. Oh, please. Come meet with me. Right. But that's what I'm saying. Like, you're, you're fucking stupid. Yeah. And then going to advise them. And like, like. Bitch, really, you need it. Really, motherfucker? <laughs> <laughs> like, bitch, you need psychiatric help. Right. And need to be castrated. Shit. And need your hands cut off. Mm -hmm. The plane had to stop in Dallas-Fort Worth. From there, it was an hour and 15 minutes to Baton Rouge. Gary spent the day in emotional turmoil. He was visiting the Cotton Club. He was sitting... There was a bar, I think. Oh, okay. He was <laughs> sitting next to a guy named Bob Skadel. Bob was the program director for WBRC Channel 2, the local ABC affiliate. He asked Gary if he knew when they were bringing Jeff back, and Gary said, quote, no, I don't. I think they have brought him back already. Bob then said, he's not back yet? Wait one minute. I'll find out for you. He got up, called the station, and then he told Gary they were scheduled to arrive around 9.30 that night. Gary then got on the phone. He was very upset. He called June and wanted details on what had happened to Jody. Now, June was very reluctant to say, Mm -hmm. okay but gary insisted he kept asking did he make jody suck his dick kept asking june with knowledge of the truth finally told him yes as well as other specifics yeah. that she told him i was going to say all of it is horrible it is gary arrived at the airport around nine o'clock that evening he walked right up the stairs the Baton Rouge Metropolitan Airport and got on a payphone. At the time, in 1984, there was a row of 12 payphones at that airport located right before you go through the metal detectors. To exit the airport, you must go down the escalator or the stairs passing right in front of the phones. 
Gary also got on the phone, uh, located across from TV cameraman Abram McGull. Gary had on a white Riverland equipment hat along with dark sunglasses. He was talking on the phone with Jim Stinky Adams. He told, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love it. He told Stinky that he was at the airport. Oh. As the plane landed in Baton Rouge, Mike, Jeff, and Bud talked about the plans. Bud told Jeff to look for any of the parents of the boys he had molested. Jeff also said he would look for his brother, Sam. He said Sam was crazy and might try to break him out if he didn't know about him molesting the children. He also said that if Sam did know of him molesting the children, he might try to kill him too. Mm. Bud, okay. told, yeah, Bud told Jeff that if he saw someone, he should yell out and hit the floor. Bud would jump on top of Jeff and Mike would apprehend the parents. I was supposed to say, whatever. I don't know that I would go that far as to jump on him to protect him. Be like, no, you can hit the floor, but... You still have due process. You still got the law. I know, and, but... You know, and I'm saying this from a parent's point of view. I know you that. Know, you know, I'm being salty over here. I'm salty as shit. Right. About all of this. So Mike went first, looking for anyone he recognized. Uh, he did not see Gary because his head was buried in the phone booth but bud and jeff saw the camera and bud told jeff he should put his head down and keep an eye out mm -hmm. gary told stinky quote the news media are here i see them coming but when he saw mike and not jeff he said quote oh they took him out a different way then the lights from the camera came on Quote, nope, they're coming and are going to walk right past me. Gary had his back turned to Jeff, Mike, Bud, and the news camera. He knew when the lights shined on him that they were right near. Mm -hmm. Gary says, quote, I'm pulling the gun out of my boot. You're going to hear the shot. And then, after all of that he said, the phone went silent. Gary turned as he saw the light in the phone booth when it got bright in the phone booth he was in he knew mm -hmm. that they were right there so he turned with a 38 revolver and he shot jeff in the ear oh my and it killed him instantly that's good that's good the force from the bullet broke jeff's neck as wow. he as he fell into the fetal position Bud Connor dropped to one knee, reaching for his gun. Mike Barnett said, these are quotes, Whoa, God damn it. Gary, why? Why, Gary? As he lunged for Gary, shielding him from Bud. Mike grabbed Gary's arm and held it straight in the air as Bud walked over and took the gun away. Bud made sure Mike had everything under control, called Gary a son of a bitch, and walked over to Jeff. And he said, quote, God damn, as he shook his head and knelt down next to Jeff's lifeless body, he shook his head and then closed Jeff's eyes. Bud got up and identified himself as a sheriff's deputy, asking anyone to call 911. He turned toward Gary and asked him, why in the fuck would you do that? And Gary looked at him crying and said, quote, if he would have done this to your family, you would have done the same thing, too. You don't know. You know what he did to Jody. Any father would have done it. I had to do it. Abram McGull, the cameraman, he got everything on camera. Everything was videoed. Mm -hmm. And the video is out there. I was going to say, because I've seen it. Well, as I said in the at the beginning of this, this video would go on to be on a show that show actually wasn't a tv show it was a series of movies traces of death hmm. so traces of death or faces of death it says traces of death in the book oh. but faces of death was another okay one uh, another i guess movie series video series or whatever but it shows those movies actually show actual deaths right. and things 
I think I remember one of them being a suicide of a guy, a businessman mm-hmm. and stuff. Remember that one? This was shown on that one. Now you can actually pull it up on YouTube and stuff, but mm-hmm. it is out there and it does show it. And um, it's gruesome. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. So yeah, now but, you know with the story. Yeah. It's just I didn't know. The, I knew why Gary had shot him. I knew why the guy was shot, but I didn't know, like, the whole backstory right. to it. So. And that's the thing is a lot of the a lot of people our age, their parents probably knew about this story or we saw the story right. in the news or something like that. And uh, there's a lot of people that don't know the story or don't know the backstory as to why it all came about this way. Right. So June arrived home from her sister Honey's house about five minutes to ten that night. She turned on the TV, and as she walked across the living room, she heard Jay Young, the local anchorman. She was planning on watching Jeff's return from California. When she heard the news, though, quote, unknown assailant guns down alleged kidnapper at a Baton Rouge airport, details at ten... Her legs went out. She knew. She started screaming and crying. She tried viciously with all of her might to get up and get to the phone, but her legs were paralyzed. She couldn't walk. She was shaking. She was screaming. She was crying. She repeatedly said, no, 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 because you're right. She knew. Mm -hmm. She knew exactly who and what had happened. Gary was taken to jail that night. I mean, it was obvious. He shot Jeff. It was on camera. I mean... He had committed murder. He had committed murder. He did. Initially, he was charged with second-degree murder. He spent the weekend there, but he posted bail, which was set at $100,000. Where did he get that money come from? He had all kinds of supporters Uh, in the community. Mm Mm-hmm. It was posted first thing Monday morning, and he was released. He was then admitted for a psychiatric evaluation to Parkland Hospital. He didn't need that. But I'm sure they had to do it protocol. But Oh, I'm sure. But he didn't need that. So there's a lot of things that happen between that time and, and the time that he goes to trial. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you that he is released from that psychiatric hospital or place Mm -hmm. with no issues right okay when his trial started gary accepted a plea deal of manslaughter oh okay yeah so he entered this uh no contest plea to manslaughter and the date of sentencing was in november of 1985 judge saya and i hope i'm saying that right s-a-i-a Saya sentenced Gary to seven years hard labor. When the Doucettes, who were there in the courtroom, heard this, they stood up cheering. But the judge wasn't done. He suspended the sentence to five years of probation and 300 hours of community service. Wow. Then the Doucettes were pissed, obviously. That's all he got. Five years probation and 300 hours of community service. Gary did his community service by working at the parish church. He mostly did maintenance around the school. Mm-hmm. He served his probation time. And pretty much other than one DWI, was a perfect citizen. Gary completed his community service in 1989. He would continue his life But in 2011, he would suffer a stroke. He would go on to be in a nursing home. And in 2014, he would suffer another stroke that would eventually take his life. Mm. It was a month before his 69th birthday. So Jody wrote this book, Why Gary Why? The Jody Ploche Story. And it is a very good book. He goes on in his life advocating for children and those who are victims Mm -hmm. of sexual abuse and sexual assault and he has done some really really good things in his life and he has turned it around and he has taken this 
negative thing in his life and he has turned it into a positive and at first he was mad at his dad for killing jeff he was mad but he understands now why mm-hmm. gary had to do what he had to do because parents out there want to protect their children and they want to do what's right for their children and things and when you hear the details mm. of something that like this that has right. happened your initial reaction is i want to kill him right or at least i want to hurt him really bad i can't say that i blame gary in this circumstance and the manslaughter the whole plea for manslaughter was the prosecutor probably was looking at it and was like i will be prosecuted if i prosecute him yeah because the community is behind him because of what this man did to his child Mm mm-hmm and, and so, not just his child, two others. And two others, yeah. yeah. Now, we all have rights in this country, and one of those rights is due process. Yeah. We have the right to a trial, a speedy trial, and to confront our, our accusers, accusers yeah. and, and things like this. And so that's the law. That's the justice part of the rights. And so I know what would have happened to Jeff had he gone through the due process and went into prison, which he would have gone into prison, okay? Oh, he would have been taken out there. Yeah, because his sperm was found in a a minor's body. Yeah. So he would have gone to Angola. Either way, he would have died. He would have been beaten Mm -hmm. upon recognition as soon as he got to Angola. Yeah. And so whether the dad wants to sit back and let that happen or take things into his own hands, which today, this was the 80s, today, Gary Plochet would not have been given on, a plea deal. Yeah, he and would have just been, been on probation. He would have been sentenced for murder, right? and he would have been in prison. Yeah. So nowadays is a lot different than back then, but I, I get it. I, I get it where Gary was. I yeah. get it. So... Let me know. I, we want to know what your feelings are. And I'm thinking yours are probably in the same line as my. It, I would have probably done the same thing. Yeah, because I'm, I mean, obviously it was wrong that Jeff was murdered, but Jeff was in the wrong too for the shit he had done. But thinking of, of it from a parent's point of view, obviously I'm on Gary's side. Mm-hmm. Like, damn you did what a lot of other parents probably want to do mm-hmm. i mean i was a year in this year 1984 i was a year younger than jody and so i was fixing to start getting into karate just like him i was fixing to start fighting in tournaments just like him and so i can relate i see where jody was at but then at the same time as a older now as a father i see where gary's at yeah you know this is a tough one yeah so we want to know what y'all's thoughts are our listeners so please send us an email let us know what you do seed disturbed podcast at gmail.com let us know what your thoughts on this and um yeah what would you do yeah what would you do now keep in mind what you would do in the 80s versus what you would do today is completely different (laughs) because you know the consequences are different you know but if you knew that you could do it and just get probation and community service i don't think the consequences were weighing on gary's mind i know then because probably the the community was a different community Mm -hmm. and stuff but nowadays you probably know in the back of your head okay if i go and i do this I'm going to prison for murder, mm-hmm. you know. So, which I'm sure Gary probably was pretty sure he was too. But yeah, he he knew he was going to go to go to prison, but he was still doing it. He was doing it. Yeah. So, let us know what you think. We want to hear from you. This is a, a rough one, but uh, I encourage everybody to go and buy Jody Plochet's book, "Why Gary Why: The Jody Plochet Story." And Plochet is spelled P-L-A-U-C-H e with an accent over it so go check that out it's a really good book and uh, i will cite my other sources in the show notes so uh, this one was a tough one for me to get through Mm -hmm. i'd been working on this one for a while and 
it had just come up. Uh, you know, I mentioned it to to one of the one of the boys, uh, Gavin, and he said that he had saw Jody had recently tweeted something out and stuff about I believe the book and stuff. And so, yeah, he knew about it too. He knew the mm-hmm. story and things. And so, this was a rough one to get yeah. through. Anyway, sorry for the length, but. I thought it was a good story. Um, I had some feelings about it, some rough ones. We want to hear from you guys. So stay tuned. We're working on some future episodes that we're going to be recording and getting uploaded. And um, I want to get that out there to you guys and be on the lookout. We've got some bonus content coming up for you guys. Again, uh, those are uploaded to our Patreon page. So if you're not a subscriber, go out there and subscribe. Uh, we look forward to having you a part of our Patreon family. Until we get those next episodes uploaded, I'm Paul. And I'm Jamie. And please join us next time. And remember to stay disturbed. Bye. Bye.